0: Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse.
1: And I'm Rory Poulter. We're reporters at Third Sector and this week we'll be looking at the role of faith-based charities in the sector and in wider society. Later in Charity Changed My Life we'll be hearing from someone who reaps some benefits as a volunteer for Barnardo's. But
0: we're going to go straight into our main discussion now. The UK is becoming both more religious and more secular in many ways. While Christian congregations are overall on the decline, the country's Muslim population is one of the fastest growing religious groups. And these trends, of course, have implications for the voluntary sector. Almost every mosque, temple, church or synagogue is a separate charity, while a significant proportion of all charities have religion at their roots. Looking at society today, religious charities can play a vital role in entering so-called hard-to-reach communities, as well as delivering much-needed services. But how does being connected to a faith affect them, and how can they be better supported?
1: We have two guests joining us to discuss some of these issues. With us in the studio is Judith Moran, Director of Quaker Social Action, an East London charity founded by Quakers 150 years ago, which supports people on low incomes. Hi Judith.
0: Hi. Also joining us is Jahangir Malik, Policy and Engagement Director at Mercy Mission UK and former Chief Executive of Muslim Aid. He co-authored the recent Muslim Civil Society report. Hello, Jahangir. Hi. So to kick us off, could you please tell us, Jahangir, about the evolving role of faith-based charities in public service provision and your perspective on how... Muslim charities
2: in particular
0: are serving and securing the trust of hard-to-reach communities?
2: I think that's a really interesting starting point. Muslim charities, as you pointed out quite rightly in your introduction, if you look at the census data, Muslim community is just under 3.7 million in population size and just under 6% of the population, which has grown from 1.7 million over just 20 years ago, half of that population is under the age of 25. So you have a very young, growing, vibrant, dynamic, evolving community. In terms of faith infrastructure, there's just under 2,000 mosques, Islamic centers alone. So the starting point for me is that the Muslim community lives, resides, and these institutions live, reside, and are actively engaged during all times and all crises within the society and within those sort of so-called hard-to-reach communities. It's never a present reality of the congregation, the community, and the evolution in nature of the community. But fundamentally, the mosques and Islamic centres are anchored within the community that they live in. Judith, which part of your
1: identity is more significant or important? Your identity as an East London community organisation or a Quaker community organisation?
3: I think that they're both really, really important to us. We were founded by Quakers over 150 years ago. You know, Quakers came to East London, traditionally a place of immigration, at that time a place where people were being left behind and there wasn't help from anybody for people who were living in appalling conditions and Quakers went in and thought we need to do something we need to do something practical and we always say our heart and our heritage is in East London and it's an enormously interesting vibrant ever-changing community to be part of but we're really driven by those Quaker values you know at the heart of Quakerism there's a very strong value around equality And I think if you fundamentally believe in equality, then you're really driven to look at social injustice. So they're both really, really important to us.
0: And going back to you, Jahangir, what do you think in terms of the importance of the Muslim identity when you're thinking about the work that you're doing when you're doing community outreach work? And my understanding is particularly during COVID, you were reaching out to charities that went far beyond your congregational communities? How important is it that Islam is at the centre of everything that you're doing?
2: Yeah, in our recent report on the British Muslim Civil Society, which was launched with the All-Party Parliamentary Group on British Muslims in Parliament earlier this year, it was a year-long project. One of the key findings of this is faith is a major driver of the social change and the action, social action that was taking place in different parts of the country. And the faith driver is a really important aspect of the sort of identity of British Muslims within the United Kingdom and that plays a really valuable role. We've seen that demonstrated in social action during the crisis in Grenfell where the like support, Port Bellow Trust, St Methodist Church and the Muslim Culture Heritage Centre came together and were the actual safe space and the, the key community institutions infrastructure when, frankly speaking, the communities at that point in time, gave up on the state structures that basically failed them at that time, and what was at the heart of that response and the safe space was those faith institutions coming down, which led to a report called Mind the Gap, which was drawing on the valuable lessons learned of the role of faith institutions during crisis. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, during COVID, once again in a national pandemic setting... We saw the NHS, the fantastic NHS at the time, playing a phenomenal role with collaboration and ensuring that there was a co-created effort to ensure that the vaccinations and the health and safety of all in our some communities was at the, the center and this, the mosques and the islamic centers across the country played a critical and vital role of ensuring we responded and uh, kept people safe to the needs at that particular time
0: was that in terms of your collaboration with the nhs specifically thinking about the vaccination drive was it specifically muslim communities that the organization that you were working for was targeting or were you reaching out to the wider local populations?
2: During the pandemic, if we remember, all the places of worship were closed. Yes. And so then there was a, a recognition of the fact that our primary function at that particular time during the mosques and the Islamic centers role had quite evolved to recognizing what was the wider need. And the wider need was to ensure that the elderly, those Which were hard to reach, those that which were marginalized, those that were adversely impacted by COVID were reached. And we all came together and the community outreach was well beyond the Muslim community. And I think that was quite a pivotal moment in which that COVID recognized the solidarity of everyone coming together, the role that we all sort of play in the rich tapestry of the communities that we live in and reside in, and the communities who are in need. So whether it was immigrant communities as just described by Judith, with the Quaker community, or whether it's wider communities within places like in Birmingham or West Midlands or Manchester, that the whole of the wider society, our constituency, our, our community, and we sort of come together and complement each other with our different faith drivers to help bring social change, especially during a time of crisis. And that, I think, was well-documented, recognised by statutory bodies, government bodies and the NHS working together and I think it was a fine example of how we can get it right. Mm.
0: Judith how did Quaker social action work during the pandemic looking back to those years how did you have to change your priorities what you were doing?
3: Yeah I think you know, it's very interesting to hear and understand the growing Muslim population and the youth of the Muslim population. The Quaker community in the UK is very different. You know, it's a shrinking group of people and they're ageing as well. So our... Ability isn't quite the same, you know, we weren't able to galvanise people within the community in the same way that Yohanga was talking about. So we were like many other charities. We were like, what on earth can we do? How can we pivot? How can we support people? How can we be innovative? How can we be creative? How can we be dynamic? And we run a whole range of different services to support people and we really had to think very carefully about how to make those accessible to people. One of the ones that was significantly impacted by the pandemic is we run a project called Down to Earth, which is for people to get affordable and meaningful funerals. And we sensed at the beginning, and this sadly was the reality that people on low incomes were more impacted by covid and we saw an enormous groundswell of need for that particular service. So we expanded that enormously during COVID. We had a lot of volunteers. We had a lot of extra funding. So, you know, in a different way, we were part of that community response. Unfortunately, at the very sort of sad end of COVID.
0: But a vital one nonetheless. Mm. And am I correct in thinking that probably not all that many of the people that you were helping were themselves part of the Quaker. Yeah, movement. absolutely.
3: It's always really important for us to explain what the Quaker in our name means. Yeah, It's incredibly important to us. It's a precious part of our identity. We were founded by Quakers, but we are not a religious organisation. We're not an organisation that is run for Quakers, by Quakers. We get a huge amount of financial support from Quakers who would see that what we do is put their faith into action but that doesn't affect what we do and who we help. And I think all of us in our sector, it's really beholden on us to be really clear what key attributes we have and so people can make a choice about if they want to engage with us as partners or to come and use our service. And it's really important to us that we're very clear what the Quaker and our name means, but also what it doesn't mean. We don't want to be a barrier for anybody to come and access anything that we do.
1: Okay, so this one is for both of you, so I'm more throwing out to the floor. I was wondering where either of you fell on the debate around counting advancement of religion as a charitable purpose and how that plays into each of your charitable exploits.
2: I think that's one of the barriers to engaging with faith-based organizations, the perception that sort of we're led by our mission, which we absolutely are, and that mission is for the advancement of the religion and the propagation of what you make say go towards the proselytization of converting people as it were now sort of the core mission and the purpose of the organizations that sort of especially along mosque and islamic centers across the line say that faith is a very important part of that but i think the fact that we've been able to sort of demonstrate that the community aspect of it, the social action aspect of it. So these are the faith ideals and the principles in which that we establish an organization. And by virtue of the fact that we demonstrate a care, concern, compassionate approach to community, which is open to all, is one that really was evidenced again during COVID and post COVID, especially during the cost of living crisis. Let's talk about many of the mosques and Islamic centres across the country that are providing food banks at this moment in time. Real needs in places like where I've grown up in the inner cities of Birmingham, which has an increasing demand of the reliance, sadly, in 2023 on food banks. Now, Many of the mosques and Islamic centers recognizing their role in anchored in society goes well beyond the Muslim community, as we pointed out earlier, and meeting the increasing needs, whether it's homelessness or, you know, rough sleeping, homelessness, food banks and the likes. This is a part of the social action provision. That's the new evolution of the Islamic center Muslims, which may be what was started 30, 40, 50 years ago as a place of worship, which is fundamentally still there as a place of worship. You can walk into it, meet your spiritual, religious needs, as it were. But there is a social welfare action oriented approach in which is civic engaged and which is an engaged, which says that we are faith based. We are Muslim. We are as Islamically A framework is our sort of faith framework. In addition to that, an outward manifestation of that is our engagement is civic participation, which we play a strong hand and role in demonstrating the ability to reach people in times of need, in terms of difficulty, and if we just look across any of these cities in terms of demographics of young people who really don't feel they have a stake in society, who really feel very alienated by the structures and systems that inherently work against them, we feel that faith centers such as mosques and centers across the country play a critical, vital, pivotal role in enabling us to bring social change whilst ensuring we have a faith framework that operates uh, at the core of that driver.
0: Thanks, Johanga. And um, Judith, what's your perspective on that?
3: I think I would agree with an an awful lot of what Johanga said. I've worked in the voluntary sector my whole career. I think that the voluntary sector is an absolute force for good. And I think lots of people engage with the sector. And I don't just mean the charity sector, I mean all sorts of informal ways of just trying to make the world a better place. People engage with that for all sorts of motivations. And for some people, a very, very deep motivation of that is their faith. And actually, I'm pro everything that makes this world better for people who have inequalities and injustice and inequity. I think we're often encouraged to have false discussions about things that are abstract. And I I think one of the words that's came out quite a lot in what we've both said is the word action. Mm. Actually, it's much more important that people are judged by their actions, be they faith based organisations or secular organisations. We're all there to be scrutinised by our donors, by the Charity Commission. Again, it's just about transparency, I think.
0: Mm. But I understand that over the course of your career, you've worked for both faith-based organisations such as Quaker Social Action and those which have no or very little current connection to religion. Does that put you in a different position? Do you feel that you're in a different place or in a different box almost within the sector and society now working for a Quaker organisation
3: as to previously when you didn't? Hmm. You know, I'm not a Quaker, but I find it really wonderful to work for a Quaker organisation because Quakers have been at the vanguard of social change in many many ways and I would hope and believe that I would continue to be hard-working and ethical and honest wherever I worked but there's something actually really wonderful about working for a faith-based organization where you need to be accountable to those values so yes it, it's different in many ways and lots of our uh, supporters are Quakers, so we need to speak a different language to them to connect with them about the work that we do. But fundamentally, the work that we do is exactly what Johanga's talking about as well. It's just trying to meet people where they're at and support them with what they need.
1: Juhanga, I was hoping to get your insight into a story that's been in the news lately concerning the Green Lane Masjid. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if you've seen this. Absolutely. Obviously, for those who don't know, what happened was... A mosque in Birmingham was intended to receive 2.2 million in funding from the government through the Youth Investment Fund. That fund has now been paused
2: mm-hmm.
1: due to allegations of homophobia and misogyny. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, do you think that was a fair decision? Do you think that was what was best, or what do you think should happen?
2: Yeah, as you can imagine, I'm from Birmingham. I've been working on this project, and it fundamentally just led a backdrop. One of the policy recommendations on the British Society project is that faith-based organizations are better involved and engaged and as a result to work on ensuring that they are up to the position in which that they can play a valuable role in bringing social change and to be a part of the ecosystem and the architecture that enables that for to happen. So let's put a couple of things into perspective. One, DCMS have put out a fund for young people to build youth infrastructure. Within the British Muslim community, as we mentioned earlier, a rising growing population of 3.6 million, which constitutes 6% of the population and a over 50% is under the age of 25. There is currently very little allocation from that second round of funding of 188 million that went to Muslim youth organization infrastructure to help reach young people. Green Lane Mosque and community centre was the only faith infrastructure from a Muslim background. I may not be entirely correct on that. It was my understanding that it is the only Islamic centre, faith centre that has successfully been granted 2.2 million pounds to build a youth infrastructure, to fundamentally help young people realise their potential in one of the most deprived areas in Birmingham, which I know too well. Because like I said, much of my childhood and growing up was in these kind of neighborhoods and I have a personal connection to that particular area. So we were very successful and just for transparency, I was involved in that project and we were very successful in helping secure that bid and we're very proud of the fact that we were working to improve youth provision in that area. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, last week, some social media clips started doing the rounds, which fundamentally was taken out of context, because it was a 25-second clip out of the 45-minute video, and the 45-minute lecture was on a theological discourse around um, the practice of punishment and atonement and repentance and forgiveness in a theological lecture over 45 minutes. Anyway, just to sort of illustrate the point, unfortunately, that 25-second clip has... I believe, or the Green Lane Mosque believes, maliciously being put out to discredit the organizations because it was receiving funding. Two things have happened. One, the Youth Investment Fund is conducting its own investigation, which we welcome because that will enable us to establish the facts. And Green Lane Mosque itself has initiated an investigation onto the whole matter. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, I think, it's unfortunate that we're in a situation where we're having to go into spending time, money and resource looking into the matter. But if they are legitimate, genuine concerns, I think they should be sort of absolutely investigated and looking at improving those. I just want to touch upon a point here because it's part of a much wider aspect. One, there is a feeling that Muslim communities and organizations and infrastructure, right? And yeah, personally, I, I've led Islamic Relief, Muslim Aid, humanitarian organisations. I've led a number of Muslim faith-based organisations post in the world of 9-11. There is a real valid concern of perception and otherwise of being targeted and often using sledgehammer approaches to deal with a small nut. Not to say that Muslim organisations should be absolved from scrutiny, ensuring that our practices are in accordance with law social norms active and so forth and all the rest of it not that we should be beyond any reproach of any scrutiny that's not the case i think that's absolutely the case that's absolutely fair and uh, understandable but what i would say is that we approach these kind of matters with a degree of proportionality and fairness and ethical injustice and once we establish those points we all sort of learn from these experiences and move forward but sadly in my own experience over the last two decades that hasn't been the case and i will have to be sort of truthful in say that i feel there is a quite an element of racism discrimination islamophobia and unease in which that we're trying to ensure that Muslim civil organisations come into the wider civil society, which is what this debate is about and which the discussion is about. And every time we take a step forward, we have to take two steps back as we're targeted for being misogynistic or racist and et cetera, et cetera, which may yeah. well be some legitimate concerns that need addressing. I'm not saying that isn't the case. but What I am saying is that it should be done in a process of fairness and not in the court of public opinion about what certain elements of the media think has happened and hasn't happened. For example, we should be going through the same level of scrutiny, fairness and process as anybody else. Interestingly, this project is aiming to reach all in the community, whether you're Muslim or not Muslim. Again, Judith, this is what we were talking about earlier. So you have a set of faith framework that says, you know what, we want to help all of society. Then you put yourself forward for that. Yeah do that and then you get sort of this backlash.
0: You've raised some really important points, Jahangir. There are lots of sensitivities surrounding these issues, which have ultimately come to a head because a large amount of public funding is at play. And as you say, a fair and impartial investigation is what needs to happen next. But it seems like a very good opportunity to look deeper into the question of funding for faith-based organisations. Judith, you have a ready-made Quaker support base how important is this source of unrestricted funding to you and how does your religious identity play into securing that
3: yeah absolutely let me just say though before that next year is the 400th anniversary of george fox's birth and he was the founder of quakerism and early quakers were ridiculed and disrespected they were imprisoned for their beliefs you know they were othered in our society and I think as an act of allyship all faith-based organisations really need to just kind of you know I'm just very taken with what Johanna said about what it's like to feel that society's got it in for you so I just think as one faith-based kind of organisation to another there's always a place for faith-based organisations and sometimes you get criticism for that. Yeah, going back to Quaker Social Action and our Quaker support, I've been with Quaker Social Action for over 20 years, which is an obscenely long time to work for any organisation. And partly that's because we get a huge amount of unrestricted income, and that is gold dust for us in our sector to be able to innovate and create, to be kind of in charge of your own destiny, to take risks, to have money that sort of smooths out the bumps in the roads and that's largely because of the trust that Quakers put in us as a charity so we are accountable to them we need to repay that trust and we speak to them in the way we speak to all of our funders and donors which is truthfully we do everything we do in good faith pardon the pun (laughs) um And sometimes things work brilliantly and sometimes things don't. And sometimes the unintended outcomes are amazing. And sometimes we get things wrong. We have as one of our organizational mantras that we are willing to admit mistakes and learn from mistakes. And a key tenant of Quakerism is consider you might be mistaken. So I think there's a humility in the work that we do, as well as actually a real sense of pride and social justice that I think very much appeals to a Quaker audience but I hope has a universal appeal beyond that as well so we're very grateful and appreciative that Quakers invest money and trust in us and we seek to repay that by essentially taking their name out to do really good practical useful work in the community.
0: And if you didn't have the guarantee of that funding from your support base would you struggle to be doing the work that you're doing and, and have you encountered any challenges in trying to get funding from elsewhere because of your faith-based identity
3: it's very hard to imagine ourselves without that identity and without that money for sure so i think it would be a struggle and it is a challenge you know i think having quaker in our name is a strength a weakness an opportunity under threat There are some people that don't want anything to do with with faith-based organisations, but we are who we are. There are other people who have a positive curiosity and interest in faith-based organisations. So I think it can be both. And all we can do is say, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is how we do it, and foster those relationships positively.
0: Jahangir, just one last question for you. Thinking about collaborations between different charities from different sectors, do you feel that there is a big gap that needs to be bridged between Muslim charities and their counterparts from other faiths or indeed no faith at all? And what would your advice be to charity leaders, perhaps not from a faith-based organization, who really want to engage their Muslim peers? How can they do so and why is it important to do so?
2: Listening to Judith there really helps a minority organization or minority community establishing itself within the United Kingdom as part of that civil society tapestry realize we're not the first <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination and the fact that faith-based organizations have historically and do today play a vital role in bringing social change within our sort of society. And so if we do that in an allied way, in a way that we sort of did, again, I come back to, COVID and the way that what we heard or what what I recall in COVID was this will be the new norm as it were. So I'm hoping that the way that we came together during COVID and crisis and the likes is the way that becomes the default way of operating. And that's built on relationships, reducing trust deficit so that we can work on an asset a based approach, what do we bring to the table? What is the potential of 3.6 million British Muslims feeling a stake in society and using the organizational infrastructure that is a part of that, which is by no means a stretch of the imagination perfect, but is on an evolutionary journey of generational changes and the likes. Judith mentioned upon the value of having your money. The vast majority of British Muslim civil society infrastructure is self-funded and the amount of money that is donated by the British Muslim community across the country, which is some of the most poorest, is something that is really to be commended. Now, how do we bring that in collaboration with the public sector, with, let's take West Midlands as an example, West Midlands crime commissioners and the police and dealing with social crime, social deprivation, homelessness and all the societal challenges within a region. If we come together and work collaboratively, with all sectors that appreciate and value the recognize, the value add and the social value impact of faith-based organizations, I think that we will potentially be onto a very good model moving forward. However, if on the opposite, we marginalize, stigmatize, otherwise lazy labeling and lazy process of engagement, what do you think the outcome is going to be? A further diversion, further distancing of people, communities, ghettoisation, isolation.
0: Well, very interesting note to end on, Jahanga Malik and Judith Moran. Thank you both so much for joining us.
1: Moving on to Charity Changed My Life, where we bring you stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better thanks to the work of charities. This week, we're hearing from 16-year-old Tiana, whose experience of volunteering for Venados helped her get through a difficult time in her own life.
4: Originally, I got in touch with Bernardo's through my mother, who is GP. There was uh, an opening to volunteer with the service, and at that time, I wasn't in a brilliant place myself. And I think being part of this amazing environment, it really brought me to a place where I could begin focusing on myself more and on helping other people as well. I joined the Voice and Influence panel, and we set up an event. Um, called Putting Young People in Charge of Their Healthcare. And we had a panel of young people, a panel which I was on, where people asked us, well, what do you want to see? How can we make mental health more accessible for you? Before, I had absolutely no idea of all of the intricacies that were part of the mental health system and just how complicated it actually is. In parts of my journey where the system had indeed failed me. And to work on improving that, for other people, is something that does make you feel better. It helped me in ways that I don't think counselling ever could have. I was surrounded by people who had shared similar experiences to me, who had been through similar things to me. And there was a, a great focus on helping others and supporting others, which really builds up your confidence and your capacity to, to be kinder to others and kinder to yourself. Looking at before and after, the difference is genuinely massive. So was a time where it was difficult to get out of bed and everything was a chore. And being part of this brilliant, supportive environment changed things massively. Suddenly it was a part of my day that I really looked forward to. And meeting these people, even outside (laughs) Bernardo's, in a friend capacity is something that I hadn't done in months. I hadn't gone out with people in months. I have realized with this experience that if I want change to be seen, then we have to be the forefront of that change. For Bernardes, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do, but now I feel like (laughs) mental health legislation is something that needs immense work and something that I would be pretty eager to join in terms of looking forward
1: That was Tiana talking about how her involvement with Bernardo's has changed her life for the better. And if you'd like your charity to be featured, we'd love to hear from you. Details of how to get in touch and submit a story idea featuring one of your service users are in the show notes.
0: Next week, we'll be in conversation with a charity leadership coach talking about overcoming problems such as burnout and compassion fatigue and suggesting ways in which charity leaders can be better supported both by themselves and those around them. But for now, thank you to our guests, Judith and Jahangir, and our producers, Navpal, Inga Marsden, and Till Owen.